the reality is we can't save everybody. But what we can do is be ready. And that when we have to bury one of our own, we can at least look at their family members as a medical community and say that we gave them every possible chance. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Army Colonel Dr. Ramey Wilson to War Docs. Dr. Wilson is a board-certified and fellowship-trained internal medicine physician. He currently serves as the Deputy Director of the Military Internal Medicine Division at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and as the Operational Medicine Advisor for the Center for Global Health Engagement. His most recent operational assignment was the Command Surgeon Medical Director for Special Operations Command Africa. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of Dr. Wilson's vast experience in operational medicine, identifying the requirements and managing the challenges of developing and sustaining a health support plan in austere locations. He describes how the Uniformed Services University trains the next generation of military health practitioners in medicine and global health and promotes medical interoperability with our allies and our partners. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel Dr. Ramey Wilson to War Docs. Ramey, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Doug. I appreciate it, and thanks for inviting me, and look forward to our discussion. So you originally joined the military as a field artillery officer with the 82nd Airborne Division. Tell us a little bit about what brought you to join the Army and a little bit about your time as a combat arms officer. Yeah, so a little background. I grew in the Marines. My dad was a career Marine Corps officer, and his dad before him was an Army officer, actually an artillery officer who served in World War II and Korea, and grew up in the military. I liked the military as a profession, lived a lot of different places. What I mainly remember is Hawaii, a great place to, to grow up, whereas my mom's side was very much medical. So my grandfather on my mom's side was a urologist, and my grandmother was a nurse. My mom was a nurse, her sister was a nurse, so real strong medical background. So in some ways, my family had both the military and the medical. And so my parents divorced when I was 12. I went back to Oklahoma with my mom and just trying to figure out where I went to school. I ended up going to the United States Military Academy at West Point. And I really um, thought about actually doing medicine. Actually, my roommate and I both looked at it as a major and I decided against it. My major was in human factors engineering. And some of that was I trained to be an officer. So I wanted to go out there and be an officer, lead soldiers. And so I was really attracted to field artillery. Some of it was my heritage. My grandfather was an artillery officer. But I liked the idea of being in the combat arms where you're operating at, I guess, a, a higher level, in, so to speak. So as a fire support officer, I worked with this troop commander that I was a fire support officer and bringing in a lot of outside resources in terms of thinking about coordinating for naval gunfire or close air support or the actual artillery from the guns from my battalion. So that's what led me to doing that. And I loved it. I loved being a lieutenant and I tried to get into the best unit that I thought I could get into. So I ended up going to the 82nd Airborne Division and my plan was to be a career artillery officer and be the best one I could be. What sparked your interest in making that major career change from artillery officer to become a medical corps officer? And how did that experience in that combat arms unit shape 
you know, how you looked at the medical corps in the army. It took me almost a year to get to my unit and finished West Point. Then I went to airborne school. Then I went to artillery school. Then I went to ranger school, graduated from ranger school, and then got to my first unit, got married right when I got to my unit. My wife and I had been engaged for about a year and a half. And just three years of, they talk about being in the 82nd, jumping on a train and holding on for dear life. And really that's what it was, very high operational tempo where I was put into jobs where you had to think on your feet and you had to work with your NCOs to get the mission done. I loved it. But what was interesting is when I looked at the officers that were the majors and the lieutenant colonels that were my leaders, none of them seemed very happy. And this was the mid 90s and we were going through a drawdown in our forces. And the only real deployments that were going on were what was going on in the Balkans and Bosnia and such. And they were working really hard, but they didn't seem very happy. And they would tell me, Ramey, you better enjoy being a lieutenant because these are the best years you're ever going to have in the army. And I heard that from more than one person. And so I was like, well, Okay. Hmm. I'm not sure. And so that had me questioning my long-term path as much as I loved being a lieutenant and loved being in the army. And one of my soldiers one day brought me a um, paper to sign. And I was like, what's this? He's like, oh, sir, so I can take classes at night for tuition assistance. And I was like, hmm, tell me more about this. And because and my wife was a CPA, she was working late nights. And uh, so I looked into it and they offered classes at night through the uh, local technical college. And so I'm like, huh. I was only missing four classes to, and I was thinking about doing medicine before. So maybe I'll just take some of these classes and see what it's like being a student again. And so I started taking the biology one and two at night. And while I was on active duty, made for some busy days, uh, especially when I was in Canon Battery XO, where I missed a lot of the classes, but was able to, you know, do independent study and take the tests. And then that's what sold it for me with deciding that I would make a pivot to the medicine. And so ended up taking the MCAT, studying for the MCAT, taking the MCAT, applying to USU, and then getting accepted. So I actually made captain instead of going off to what's now the advanced leader course or advanced officer course, I went back to being a second lieutenant and started at USU. I will say there were a couple of things that I really liked that I learned, especially now looking back that I learned as an artillery officer that really shaped the way I think I approach things as a medical officer. As much as ranger school was not a bag of roses, one of the things I really liked about ranger school was that we actually went and did the missions. And so there's nothing like actually going out and doing the missions to see if your planning and all the things that you're thinking about were actually working. Because at West Point, we would do all these planning and write op orders and we turn it in. And then you, you always wonder, did I pick the right tactics? Did I do it the right way? But you never had that real feedback of actually doing it. Where in Ranger School, they gave us a mission, we planned the order, and then we went out that night and tried to execute it. And we found out what worked and what didn't work by actually doing it. So that really stuck with me, the idea of actually doing something to prove that you're actually ready. And that is actually that deliberate practice of repetition. You actually can learn a lot about what works and doesn't work. The other thing I learned was how much your soldiers really look up to you. And you hear that, but I had one instance. We were actually on an airplane. We were going to do, we we're going to jump into an off post training assignment. And when we jumped, we would, we would drop our artillery with parachutes and we would jump after it. And then the time standard was we had 20 minutes from the last time of the, the last person exits the aircraft to being prepared to send our first round down range, landing, assembling, getting the howitzer off the platform, laying the battery. The battery XO, I had to lay the battery, establish directional control, make sure my fire direction center is ready. All this in the dark because the plan was 20 to 25 minutes after the planes land, the infantry were going to do their assault on the airfield. And so we had to be ready. 
And so it was a no fail thing. We had to be ready and people were counting on us. And so that idea of our capability to be what was limiting, but we were doing that that mission and all of a sudden we were going to do in-flight rigging with our parachutes. And then all of a sudden smoke started coming into the cabin from, we were on a C-141 and they came over the loudspeaker and they'll get, yeah, we've got a fire in the cockpit and we're turning around. We're going to do an emergency landing back at Fort Bragg. And I thought that was the first time where I think my life was actually like in any type of actual mortal danger. And I think it was really interesting because I just noticed how all of my soldiers were looking right at me and looking to see how I was going to react. What was I doing? We weren't rigged. So sometimes in an emergency, you quickly hook up to the static line and just everybody jumps out to get out of the aircraft. But because we didn't have our parachutes on, we couldn't do that. And then, so I learned that lesson as a leader, which is sometimes the best thing I need to do as a leader is just not panic and control my outward emotions. And even though what's going on inside was crazy, the soldiers reflect that and they're looking to you as a leader. Same thing as in the operating room, I'm sure you've seen, or when running codes where when things are going sideways, everyone looks to the leader to maintain that calm. And so that was really reinforced in that event. And then the other just story to share with you a little bit was I had this battery commander who uh, pushed me sometimes. And so when you move your artillery, the, the most dangerous part for an artillery um, battery is when you're moving. And because if someone calls for a fire mission while you're moving, you have to be prepared to do what's called a hip shoot, which means find an open place real quickly and then do a hasty lay of the battery and be prepared to fire. And by doctrine, the way you do that is you actually, the XO, which is me, you actually get behind your howitzer with your compass and you literally are a little to the left, a little to the right. And I'm d- determining my azimuth based upon you know a line I drew on my map as we were bumping down the road and I was plotting where I thought the gun was going to be where I thought the target was and developing an azimuth. And he's like, Ramey, I want you to do it. And I was, which violated every range policy, safety range policy. And, and I was, sir, that's against rules. He's like, but how are you going to know if you can do it unless you actually do it? And so there are a couple of lessons there. One is it really impressed on me the trust that he put in me, right? Because now all of a sudden it's not a game anymore. And two, the idea that he really wanted to train as we fought. And so I thought that was very important. Uh, anyway, I was very nervous about that. And as much as you can negotiate with your boss a little bit, we, I was able to convince him to, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it as if, and then right before I we say fire, we'll say check fire, and then we'll go back and we'll do all the directional control, make sure we're in the range box, and then verify that I'm in a, at least shooting inside the range area before we send an actual live round downrange, which could be theoretically into a training area or something like that. I'm like, all right, we'll do that. So, and fortunately, and then it was a big confidence booster for me that, yeah, I actually was pretty close to where I really needed to be. So again, that highlighted the importance of hands-on real world training and making that as realistic as possible. But I really appreciate Scott Biscotti was his name. He's my battery commander. He trusted me and he was willing to accept that risk as a leader to make sure that we were ready to actually do our wartime mission. And we weren't planning to deploy. We would cycle through the division ready brigade, which meant we'd be on two-hour recall to go anywhere. But that was a big what if in the middle of the 90s. And so those were some key lessons that taking care of your soldiers, nobody joins the army to fail. And so when someone isn't succeeding, I think you just have to take a step back and say, okay, what's going on here? Because 
I think it's really helpful. I learned this as a leader is assuming the best for people. And so when things aren't going right, take a step back and ask yourself, okay, something's going on here because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I'm just going to screw everything up today, right? Everybody wants to do a good job. And then I think it's our, our job as leaders to, to try to facilitate that. So let's fast forward just a little bit into you've completed medical school and now you're doing your internal medicine residency at Walter Reed. And that's in the years 2002, 2005. So right after 9-11, the wars going off in Afghanistan, starting up in Iraq, lots of high operational tempo casualties flowing into Walter Reed. How did that experience shape the rest of your career in military medicine? I think it was significant. I think to give you an idea, Desert Shield, Desert Storm happened right after I started at West Point. And I remember I talked to my dad, who was a Vietnam vet, and thinking to myself, oh, I've missed the war. This is a once in a generation war. And we had Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And I just, I missed it, right? I'm going to have a peacetime career. And he told me, he's like, Ramey, don't worry, something will happen. And he really was, was right on that. So 9-11 happened when I was a fourth year med student. I was actually doing my sub-I at Walter Reed. I graduated that spring and then did internal medicine residency right after at Walter Reed as well. And so my internship and residency was during that time period at Walter Reed where we were full with combat casualties. It was, I, I will tell you, especially at the very beginning, it was very hard because Walter Reed and our medical system was just not prepared. I still remember I was in the ICU when we first started getting our first casualties from the Iraq war. And the plan was, well, we'll just have the, the discharge planners each pick up one or two casualties and do the discharge planning. And there was the assumption that the families would come alongside and take care of their service members. And the reality was a lot of our service members come into the military for opportunity and, and sometimes to actually get out of bad situations. And so it was, there was a lot of, uh, it was, you know, I'll, I'll get super emotional if I think of a, a lot of it, but just thinking about these folks that had gone into harm's way and then come back and, and we really weren't ready to take care of them long-term. And it, amazing to see what changed pretty rapidly once our leaders saw that we weren't ready to add additional resources. But I, I'll tell you, I, I still have memories of being an intern in the ICU at Walter Reed and Aravax coming and they'd put 10 innovative patients in the ICU and, and I'd spend all night as the intern weaning down their vent support, weaning off their, their sedation and not with the goal, if we could, to extubate them before rounds in the morning because a lot of them had just been or had been kept intubated for the transatlantic flight uh, from Germany. And I just, I can't tell you how many young soldiers who I extubated, I was the first person they talked to since the last, you know, the last thing they remembered, they were rolling down a road and now they're waking up at Walter Reed and and this young you know kid is who's learning to be a doctor is telling them that they don't have legs anymore or that they've been injured and so I think that and then dealing with the families I think really it, it just really brought home the seriousness of what we're doing and the obligation and the promise that that we give the moms and dads of our Americans that when their sons and daughters go off to harm's way that we're going to do everything that we can. And I think that really shaped me, I think, as I had, you know, patients die and I'd have other patients die later, just this idea that the reality is we can't save everybody, but what we can do is be ready. And that when we have to bury one of our own, we can at least look at their family members as a medical community and say that we gave them every possible chance. And so that really drove me, which was just like, if 
and any of my soldiers will tell you, that was the question I always asked. Are we ready to take care of casualties right now? Why not? If we can't do it right now, then we're letting the people down that we're there to take care of. So I think that was one thing that really drove that. It also made me very well-trained, not only for that, but but the commitment that my teachers had, and my staff, my residents, the fellows, in terms of thinking about because the idea was, hey, Ramey, there's a good chance that in a couple of years, you're going to be in Afghanistan or you're going to be in Iraq. So let's think about what you need to know now so that when you're ready, what you need to know. So looking at your CV, it's evident that you're interested in research and evidence-based practice. Was there anything during your initial residency training that spurred that interest in research? Yeah. So I think some of it was my undergraduate major, which was human factors engineering, which actually we did our own research and research methods in undergrad. So I actually had some introduction to that. When I was a resident, another resident and I, we did a research study looking at the evaluation of air hunger. And so it was fun to be mentored and to see the value of doing original research as a resident. So one of the things, another pivotal thing that happened to me while I was a resident was I was selected to go to Thailand for a month and study at the Armed Forces Research Institute of Medical Science, which is one of our overseas labs in Thailand. And so when I was there, I got to work in the immunology department working on malaria research. And one of the projects that I helped work on while I was there was actually doing the trials where we got the Binax Now malaria point of care test actually through the FDA, the research that supported the FDA approval, which then I actually used those actual tests to rule out and diagnose malaria later on in my career. So seeing that linkage between research the actual clinical care, and then especially research that actually supports expeditionary care. While I was in Thailand, I got to spend two weeks up on the Thai-Burma border where we were doing surveillance studies for people walking out of the jungle from Myanmar. Aframs had partnered with this missionary hospital that was actually providing, is really a a hospital taking care of a lot of refugees along the the refugee camps along the Thai-Burma border. And so they had a, a ward there about 20 beds. And they did a clinic that was run by a uh, faith-based organization. And so they, the lab had partnered. And so while I was there, I actually took care of patients as a volunteer and, and helped them to an inpatient medicine. And that was actually the first time I'd actually done whole blood collections. We had a, a little seven-year-old come in with cerebral malaria whose hemoglobin was four. And so I was the only person that was the type match. So I actually gave blood and seen the power of that, even that early in my career, I thought was really interesting. But that also gave me a real interest in global health and austere medicine and prolonged field care experiences that you really can practice pretty good medicine in an austere location with the right principles. So you graduate from internal medicine at Walter Reed, and I'm sure people looked at your officer record brief and saw Ranger Tab Airborne. Let's get this guy into a operational unit. And so you were assigned as battalion surgeon to the 2nd Battalion of the 508th Infantry Regiment Red Devils, and ultimately were deployed to Afghanistan in 2007. Can you tell us a little bit about that deployment and any particular memories and experiences? I actually tried to get into an operational job, went down to USASOC and interviewed, but Colonel Farr, who was a USASOC surgeon then, basically, this was 2004, he's I don't have any openings. All my docs, they don't want to leave. And so he's like, why don't you come down to Fort Bragg? And at the time, third and seventh group were at um, Fort Bragg. He's like, something will open up in the next couple of years or so, but see if you can get a deployment with the 82nd. 
And and then when something opens up, we'll slide you over. So I actually was a staff at Womack and volunteered to be ProFIS to the 82nd and to fourth of the 325 that then moved over to second of the 508th and they stood up the fourth battalion. And just for those who you know are listening and we use a lot of acronyms, the ProFIS is the professional filler system. So you worked at the hospital, but you were actually assigned to a unit that if they were deployed, you would go with them. I was very fortunate where I actually got to do the ProFIS like it was envisioned to do. I volunteered because they were a local unit. I like would go over and talk to the commander. I volunteered to go back on jump status. I would on Friday, if they had a jump on Friday nights, I'd go do manifest, jump into field problems with them, be with them out in the field over the, and so I got to know all the officers. I got to know a lot of, a lot of the NCOs. And so that really paid off when, when we deployed about a year and a half later, because I actually was fully embedded. I knew the PA, he and I had already had a really good uh, work relationship. I knew the medical platoon leader. And so it wasn't like I was coming in and having to learn it all, learn everybody in the mission which is what happened later on as people started rotating through these positions more where people were joining units and they had to do all of that relationship building on the fly. So we deployed to Afghanistan in 2007. This was right during the surge into Iraq. We initially were supposed to slot in. We had already task organized and done a bunch of training with my medics based upon going up into the Korangal Valley. And then they changed us at the last minute and they sent us to Gosman. So we had to reconfigure and retask organize with my medical platoon. I had to staff two Two large fobs. So I was at the one at Fob Ghazni, which was outside of the city of Ghazni, which is right on the, the major road between Kabul and uh, Kandahar. And, and then my PA was down at Fob Warrior, which is about an hour drive south. And then we actually had a Polish company attached to us. And then I had two platoon based, fi- two platoon sized fire bases that I could only reach by helicopter. And, uh, and then I had another Polish task force that was a little bit more remote. But, but that to me, it ended up being a 15 month deployment. But to me, I loved it. I mean, it was, I was the only physician on the FOB. We were outside a major city. It was just a roll one facility, but we started taking traumas like the the second night I was there. Mostly uh, Afghan National Army and police, vehicle rollovers, IEDs. But I I mean, I got to do it all. I mean, I I did the trauma care. I did the call. I was in charge of field sanitation. We were in charge of checking the chlorine levels of the water. We did pest control. The vets taught me how to we had to catch the cats and dogs um, that soldiers were unfortunately keeping for pets, but because rabies was endemic, it really was a force health protection issue. Was there was there anything that really surprised you that you weren't expecting? So I'm that deployment taught me that I always need to lean into medical logistics. That medical logistics is hard, and you can't just assume we do at hospitals that. Everything that you want or need to take care of patients is going to be there. And as a leader, I had to make that a priority to make sure that I had what I needed so that we were ready to take care of patients. So whether that be acquiring another monitor or making sure I had enough of the medications or crystalloid or whatever it was, trying to think through what all those things. And then one of the big things I, as we were taking, we were getting anywhere from five to seven traumas a night, especially during the fighting season, I started thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, a lot of these guys I'm sending up to Bagram and I'm thinking to myself, well, what if Bagram says no? What if they if I sign, uh, send up a nine line and they say no, what do I do? So then that started making me thinking about, okay, I need to figure out 
the, the local system here. So after a couple of months of getting my own systems in place, we started doing outreach to the public health folks and then really work with them. We had a provincial reconstruction team that was located with us at Gosney and their medical provider was a, a nurse practitioner who'd also just graduated from USU. And so he was very interested in doing outreach. And so the, the two of us together worked with the Minister of Health to really develop some health development plans. And what we saw was because we started bringing the, the Afghans on post uh, to do training focused on trauma training. We helped expand their emergency department. We taught them how to use all the equipment that previous units had bought them. We helped buy them ambulances and we taught them how to do in-route care. Whereas by that, about eight or nine months later, we really saw a dip in the number of patients that they were bringing to us. So another thing I did was the Afghans would come directly to our base and they'd bypass the hospital. And so I put a stop to that. I said, okay, everyone goes to the Afghan hospital and then they call me and if it's appropriate, we'll take them, but you have to send a doctor or a nurse with the patient. So every every patient care for a non-American is a training event. And, and we would use that over and over again. It was it had its hiccups and all that stuff. But that really emphasized to me the role of training and education, especially to try to build yourself out of a job. Right. And you know, eventually they figure it out and say, we don't have to waste our time going with these patients that we can take care of by ourselves at our own hospital. So works out in the end. What was the most challenging clinical case from that deployment? I'd say there were two, if you'd give me two. One was an American, one wasn't. So the most challenging one was one of my medics. There's this really interesting thing that happened when we when we left Fort Bragg. All of these soldiers, many of whom I'd gotten to know, they introduced me to their family members. And they said, hey, this is Doc Wilson. He's going to make sure I come home. And that was, I hated hearing that uh, because that wasn't necessarily something I could promise. But again, it's I can promise that we'll be ready and we'll do everything we can. So we did lose some Americans. And one of them was was one of my medic who was a casualty of a, a roadside bomb. And the way he came to us was that little atypical because my battalion commander was actually doing a battlefield circulation with the division commander. And they were flying over the convoy when they got hit. And, and then the rapid response team to come get them was hit by another IED. And, uh, and medevac was going to be about 20 minutes out. And so my boss asked the division commander, can we just go grab them and bounce right over to the FOB? Because we literally were a one-minute flight from where we were. And so they called me and said, hey, we got incoming. And, and so we run out. It wasn't medevac. My battalion commander's like trying to do CPR. And for this one soldier that was unresponsive, we knew it was an American. And so we got him onto a stretcher. We got him to a aid station. And then we tried to work on resuscitating him. I saw his name tag and I knew who it was. Fortunately, the other medics didn't recognize him until afterwards. And so we gave him the best chance that we could. And so I feel good about that. But even in that experience, reflecting on what, what I was feeling, the stress of that situation, I think really stuck with me about because death is so final and you hate to see that happen to anybody. But I, I think you always remember the ones that you don't succeed and are not, are not able to resuscitate him. I think the his injuries were too severe to really survive. You had the opportunity in, in medical school and training to be around patients that died. What about the medics that were right out of high school and now one of their colleagues succumbs to an injury? How were they able to continue to do what they needed to do downrange? Well, it was, it was some dark days. I mean, right after that, I, I am continually impressed because unfortunately, it wasn't the last medic that I lost during every deployment. Unfortunately, and what I thought was really fascinating to me, the importance of memorial service, that it really wasn't until memorial services and the opportunity to honor 
them and their service that people could start smiling again and start laughing again and joking again. And so to me, I think it really emphasized as leaders, we need to make sure that we take the time to do that because otherwise I, I think we're missing out on the opportunity to to really let people heal from that type of experience. So that was one that was very memorable to me. I learned a lot about that. It also reinforced a lot of what I thought, which was that we always needed to be ready. And I'm so grateful that we were ready and we gave him the best chance that he had. Well, another case that actually happened about a year later was an Afghan we had three guys that were, we're not sure exactly. We think maybe they were they were bad guys, maybe in place in the 90s because they had a blast. And the story was it was a gas explosion or something like that. But who knows? doesn't really matter to me. But we got this guy that, that basically the Afghans had put in like two central lines. They had intubated him. They had sedated him. All of this training that we had done with them had really paid off. But he had about 60% third degree burns. And so when I called Bagram, they said, no, we can't take them. And so now I have this patient in my aid station and I, and I call the medical director at the hospital and I said, hey, I need you to come get him again. And he's like, please, please don't send him back. He's like, we can't take, take care of him. It exceeds our capability. So I decided to convert to palliative care and we terminally extubated him, treated his pain and terminally extubated him and he died in our aid station. That was something my medics weren't ready for. We, we talked a lot about it. It was just outside of their mindset in terms of like, what are we doing? No, we evac people. And, and what is this where we're changing the goals of care? And so I think having that ethical framework in terms of doing good and not doing bad and being able to talk through that with my medics, I think was very helpful. But that was all also memorable. I mean, I had I had so many other stories. We had 23 South Koreans get rolled up and were hostages. And I had to work with the South Koreans to do their post-isolation stuff. We had, anyway, it, it was it was quite a deployment. I think one thing on deployments that people learn quickly is that things are different when resources are not infinite. Because in America, we take it for granted that there's always infinite resources or another place that this patient can go. And that just is not the case sometimes. And that's tough. It raises some tough issues. Yeah. And, and I think especially from an ethical perspective, so I'm an internist, so my normal scope of care is bounded. But in some ways, I was the most capable probably medical officer in the entire province. And so not that I was taking people to the OR or doing anything like that, but it was this idea of what's the right thing to do. Right. And you do your best and you may be it. So you came back from that deployment and you got your wishes to be assigned to the third special forces group as the fourth battalion surgeon. Tell us a little bit about that assignment. And then your next deployment I guess, was back to Afghanistan as a command surgeon for Special Operations Joint Task Force? Yeah, so I came back, went back to the hospital for a little bit, and then the USASOC surgeon uh, asked me to come up and uh, stand up a new SF battalion. So that's when Special Forces was trying to expand a little bit. They were adding a 4th Battalion, so they asked me to come to be the first surgeon, and they're like, if you're a new battalion, you won't deploy. You're nowhere on the patch chart, which is where they have it lined up for when people are going to deploy. So you've got plenty of time to get ready and you can pretty much have big budget to stand up this new battalion. So you can have pretty much whatever. And so got into it and was really loving it. And, and one of the really interesting things, the difference between being a battalion surgeon with the 82nd, where I was a center of care as the physician and everyone else was a, a 68 whiskey medic. The difference is now I've got special forces medics that I'm responsible for. And so my role really changed from being more of the educator, trainer, validator, and 
consult service as opposed to being the one actually doing the deployment. So part of any new unit is you actually have to validate that you can do your job. So we spent a lot of time in the deserts outside of El Paso up at Donna Anna and Alamogordo and running my medics through trauma situations, patient scenarios, resuscitation, patient movement, thinking about the missions that we thought we were going to have to do. And then while we were there, they're like, oh yeah. And you guys are now deploying in four months. So get ready. And so we actually deployed less than a year after we stood up and we were in Ruzgan province, which is it's northwest of Kandahar. It's this area. It's hard to get to because of the mountains. And, and the whole idea is we were going to stand up a new special operations task force there so that the special operations guys in the south could focus just on Kandahar and, and some of the, a lot of the, the Taliban threat there. And so it was right when this idea of village stability operations were coming out. And so a lot of what we were doing was basically training local militias that were having some success with resisting the Taliban and pushing them out. And so it literally was almost like you would expect where you had these little bases all over the place. And I had special forces teams living in safe houses or rock formations or really austere locations and working with them to not only enable them, but also as they're like, well, we need to train medics for these militia forces. And so thinking about how we train people to do combat casualty care when most of them can't read, most of them don't have any type of formal education. And so that was really fascinating. And I was at the talk there. We had interesting deployment. The Dutch actually ran a role too there at the time. And uh, and they left. They're like, we're out of Afghanistan. And so the fall of uh, 2010 was uh, when they left. And so a Navy role to, uh, to replace them. I actually had a damage control surgery team that was specially put together as a hybrid one in Ruzgan that belonged to the the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, but was co-located with me. So I was supervising it. I learned a lot of the things from my first deployment. I tried to apply to the second one, reach out to the Minister of Health, work with the Provincial Reconstruction Team that was a combined Australian-US endeavor. And it's just really interesting how the same approach didn't work. It was the context was different, the players were different, and it really you know, showed me how so much of that type of development has to be done locally based upon the local context and, and the local players that so you can't just go and mint the salute, the same solution. Right. Isn't here's gonna here's be, the plan that works for everything. Right. Which is, which is the army way and it's the industrial approach. But really when you're dealing with people, it's the personalities and the buy-in with them. So when the International Red Cross came to the Aruzgan Provincial Hospital operating room, when I first got there, they asked the Afghans, well, where's your operating theater? And they said, oh, we don't operate here. The Americans operate for us, which was our special forces base was named Firebase Ripley, which is actually named after Colonel Ripley, who was a hero in the Marine Corps that I actually got to take care of at Walter Reed when I was a resident. So that was cool. And so basically the damage control security team that was there with me at, at Camp Ripley had basically undermined and basically re- taken over the surgical care for their province, which is exactly what we don't want to happen. And so basically I spent the next six, seven months changing that and was able to convince my boss that we turned our surgery team into a training platform. I was able to write curriculum and get funding to bring a doctor, nurse, and anesthetist for three months, actually live on our FOB and take care of Afghans in shoulder to shoulder with our surgery team there in in Aruzgan, got it funded for a year, and then I left. And so it was pretty exciting to see that it continued afterwards. But I think that's one of the great things about military medicine is that most of us have an education training focus. I think the team that was there when I first got there didn't see it in that context. And you just had to show them it's not any different. We can train people here to do care just like we can train people 
back in the States. It's just the context is different. And so that was a, a lot of what I did as well as working with the provincial reconstruction team, supporting the village stability operations, and even thinking about how we got the role too. So I had the role to their commander. I got him to buy on. We ran some modified ATLS classes, and I was able to get by manic training mannequins. We brought the Afghans in and we ran a training program, which really resonated with them and gave us the ability to do some partnerships. Those two deployments really showed me the value of education and training, even in the context of a deployed environment. There's a lot of times we do engagements with Afghan clinics and they'd call me the next day. They're like, hey, the Taliban came last night and they burned all the medicine because we would use CERP money to buy local medicines and help augment what they were getting through the Afghan national health strategy. But when you teach somebody something and you give them a capability, no one can take that away. So that really just highlighted to me the role of education and training in support of even during and inside of our operational context. So staying on the theme of education and training, after those experiences in Afghanistan, you came back as a lieutenant colonel and returned to a graduate medical education program to do a fellowship in general internal medicine. Tell us a little bit about that experience and how that prepared you for future assignments. So I came back from Afghanistan. They sent me to dive school. So I got to spend nine weeks in Panama City learning how to be a dive medical officer because we have uh, combat divers in special operations. So they needed physicians trained. And so that was cool. It was actually a lot of fun once you get through pool week and you get beat up underwater. But getting to do some hard hat diving, which is something I never thought I would get to do in the Army. They then sent me to the Monterey. So I went to the Naval Postgraduate School and got a master's degree in defense analysis where I got to study political science, and it was really focused on counterinsurgencies. And I did my thesis there on the role of training of medical security force assistants. And really what I saw, especially during that last deployment, was I really wanted to get a master's of public health. And really my goal when I was a resident, my whole plan was to be an infectious doctor. The ID docs that were the fellows when I was a resident, a lot of them had been operational. A lot of the Especially at that time, it seemed like infectious disease was really the one specialty that was really more really operationally focused. And so that was my plan. Go to Bragg, do a deployment, get some experience and come back to and do ID fellowship. And then it just never happened. I was going to do an MPH as my third year of the ID for a couple of different things that happened. Basically, I ended up applying for the General Internal Medicine Fellowship, which it's not credential giving like a cardiology fellowship or something like that, but you get a chance to get a master's degree. I got mine in master's of public health, but now you could also do a master's of public administration or a master's in health professional education at USU. But you also learn how to improve your teaching curriculum development, critical appraisal. And Dr. Dizzee, who was the fellowship director at the time, who I'd known when he was a fellow, really let me focus it on the operational, how we train. And my real interest in this especially is sustainment training, right? So I think we do a really good job of initial training of our doctors as well as our medics during the initial training. But I don't think we're as good with our maintenance training or our return to practice training. So I did my my MPH paper was focused on uh, the medical uh, needs assessment of the medical sustainment training for our special operations medics. And, and then I did my practicum. At the time, it was the Center for Disaster and Humanitarian Assistance Medicine that later became the Center for Global Health Engagement, focused on health engagement and how the DOD engages in global health in a way to improve our partnerships as well as engagements with others. It was a great time to, to go from an operational force, and I've never been deployed 
with a medical unit. I've always been deployed or part of non-medical units. And so it was a really nice opportunity to come back to the, the mothership, so to speak, and be around other physicians and, and you know, learn things that I could then turn right around and apply in my next couple assignments. So let's move on to the next assignments. You became the command surgeon for the first special forces group at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. How was that assignment different or how was that unit different, the missions and experience from what you experienced when you were at Fort Bragg? And what was your biggest challenge in that role? So the group is the level above battalion, the brigade or division level. And then moving to Fort Lewis, first special forces group is regionally aligned with the Indo-Pacific region. And so my focus went from focusing on the Middle East or Afghanistan, Pakistan area in third group to now focusing on the Pacific. And when I got to the job, I'm like, okay, what are, and I was doing my analysis. I'm like, what are my real challenges. The real challenge here is the time and space issues and the austerity of a lot of the locations that we have in the Pacific. So especially with patient movement. So started thinking about who I needed to know and we would send teams to Mongolia and then start thinking about and helping plan with them in conjunction with Special Operations Command Pacific and the theater patient movement folks about how we would move patients if needed, where the local trauma care is, working with my medics in terms of how they assess those local facilities. First Battalion, First Special Forces Group is for deployed in Okinawa. So I spent a couple, several trips to Okinawa, meeting up with them and their surgeon and, and looking at what's called a commanders in crisis response force. But basically it was a group of SF guys that were assaulters that would respond to any embassy threat. Think of Benghazi in the area. And so thinking about what was going on in the Philippines and thinking about what was with their insurgencies and thinking about a lot of the work done, especially that time with Myanmar and, and Vietnam, there was a lot of changing going on geopolitically that that we needed to be prepared for. And then thinking about starting to interact with the State Department and the country teams about how we would support their embassies. I, I guess the way the way I'd like to talk about it is, is when things go sideways, a lot of times it ends up going to the special ops community and we can't fail. So we've got to, you know, be thinking about we always have to be ready and we have to think about contingency. So that's what I was thinking about. And I got a call and said, Oh, yeah, I know you we just sent you there but we actually need you to go back to Afghanistan for six more months. And so basically, at, just as I was starting to think about the problems of the Pacific, they sent me back to Afghanistan to be the surgeon for all special operations in Afghanistan. And so I did that for six months. Fascinating, especially working with a lot of our coalition partners, special operations folks. We, we were in Kabul initially, just north of the airport in the, in the north. So we would, I would actually take a couple operators. We'd just drive down to the, the hospital and I would go do rounds with the Afghan hospitals at the Roll 3 in Kabul until we moved to Bagram about halfway through the deployment. And my experience then what was right when we um, were doing a lot of work with the ghost teams. And so even though I'm not a surgeon, I got to know a lot about surgery and managing surgery teams because we were doing the ghost team concept in Afghanistan at the time to support our operations. For those that don't, ghost teams are the golden hour offset surgical teams. And at that point, we had pulled back a lot of our medical capability in Afghanistan. And so we would take surgery teams, small teams, and leap them forward and put them on the warm base to create a bubble of surgical care to, so that we could have an operation happen. And then when, when the mission was done, we would collapse it all back to our more permanent bases. And so Thinking about things like in-route care, 
surgery along the way, and then how we configure and train these teams where we're taking forward surgical teams and basically MacGyvering them into small surgical teams that are more like a soft capability, but most of the people on the team were not special operations trained. And so trying to do some training with them, some configuring, there's a lot of really good people doing good work, really trying to think through problem sets as we were working through that whole thing. So there's been a lot of controversy about what is the right size of that small surgical team. We had the FRST, the forward resuscitation surgical team, which changed to a detachment, which was splittable to two smaller teams, ghost team, even smaller. What is the right number? And I guess it does make a difference if they do have that extra soft training so that doesn't become a hindrance to their performance in austere locations. You know, I think this is a really interesting question that in some ways I almost feel like I have to tap dance around it because I'm not a surgeon. I think that there are some some really good surgeons that will tell you that surgery is always a four-handed sport and that doing it as a single surgeon is not good care. I think that there are others that say, well, it depends. I, I think the real challenge, I think, in the military is that we have to be flexible enough to where we tailor the right force to the right mission. And then me as a surgeon, my job was to communicate that to my boss so that when it says roll two at this base and it's a six-person surgery team, he doesn't think it's right. what he 22. traditionally thinks is yeah a roll to enhance with patient hold capability and whatever. So that's that's what I would tell my surgery teams, which is my job is to enable you. And so I always spend a lot of time traveling. I, I always found it very, very helpful to meet my surgery teams and in-route care teams in person because I wanted them to know that there was another physician that had their back and that I and that I trusted their clinical decisions on the ground. And as long as they were doing the right thing for the right reason, that I would always back them up. And so what I would tell them, I said, if this mission was you're going through the briefs, if you can't support this, please let me know. And we will find a way to make two ghost teams into one and make it bigger. And that's one of the real awesome things I think about practicing in the military is that you work in the context of a circle of trust and that you really have to go look people in the eye and let them know that you can trust me. I've got your back, but you need to tell me what I need to advocate for you. And so my goal was always that we tailor the force for the right requirement. And so we wouldn't use a single surgeon team if we were doing a multiple, a large operation where, where our casualty estimates were going to be higher. But if we were trying to do a low footprint effort, then that may be the best best thing based upon all of the different uh, things that my boss is trying to balance, right? Because my boss is trying to balance risk to force, risk to mission capabilities and all of that. And so being able to communicate that to him or her is a really important role for us as medical officers serving in those surgeon billets. Yeah. And I think that the general public may not appreciate how hard it is when you have those limited resources and everybody wants some. Everybody wants to have that support team close. So if something, the worst case scenario happens, they're all ready and they're there. It's impossible when you have a limited amount of resources. And so it's a tough job trying to spread those out and do it right and, and make that force meet the mission. So then, then you became the command surgeon for the Special Operations Command at Africa, stationed in Germany. How do the medical departments of all of the services assist the special operations community in their strategic mission in Africa? After at my last trip to Afghanistan, I 
did a lot of stuff in Korea, which was really interesting during one of the full legal exercises, where especially the stuff I learned in Afghanistan working with our coalition forces really came I've tried to put a little meat on the bones in terms of thinking about interoperability with our partners, especially in Korea, which at the time they were doing a lot of saber rattling and we were prepared to potentially go to war in Korea a couple of years ago. So then when I, when I, I, they asked me to, to go to Germany to, to be the surgeon for Special Operations Command Africa. It was like everything that I had learned in Afghanistan just to a bigger level. So it was all of a sudden it was, it was a joint command, coalition command where we were going to be doing things with partners, but yet not part of a NATO mission, not part of a UN mission. And really, I mean, the, honestly, the real challenge was that Africa was not really a priority. CENTCOM was still a priority, especially if that's when they were just starting to start thinking about large-scale combat operations. And so thinking about actually making the pivot to the Pacific and being prepared to big large-scale combat operations in, in Europe. And so there's no country in Africa that is an existential threat to the U.S. or our partners and allies. And so the threats to the U.S. were China, Russia, North Korea, Iran and counterterrorism organizations. And so special operations, we are the lead and SOCOM is now for the lead on counterterrorism operations. So that's what we did at Special Operations Command Africa is really working with our partners, especially in the Sahel of Africa to try to give them the capabilities they need to to keep Boko Haram, ISIS in West Africa, Al-Shabaab in Eastern Africa to a threat where they wouldn't be a threat to the U.S. homeland. And so when I moved into that job, it was some of the same issues that I had and was considering in the Pacific. And really, when I looked at what our role was, there were two major risks that I identified. One was transitions. So thinking about sometimes patients would undergo five patient transitions from point of injury all the way to Germany. Through a hodgepodge, we had contract CASVAC aircraft, sometimes we did air ambulances, partner, even partners sometimes, to the other transition was I had three surgical teams that were rotating all the time. Every four to six months, the teams would rotate in and out. I had critical care evacuation teams rotating in and out. And so there's a, there's a, there's a piece in there where when you're at a combatant command, you learn that it's actually a different part of the military. You, you actually have the combatant command side of the military. And then you have the rest of the military, which is the force generation side. And so most of us operate in this force generation side until we deploy and then we fall under a different chain of command. And so I only had you know, a certain amount of influence over units before they deployed. But then once they deployed, they fell under my boss. And so then I had a lot more influence. And so building those relationships and thinking about all the people I needed to know and have a relationship with was really daunting. So unit transitions, and we did write a paper about this recently about some of the risks associated with RIPs. And so relief and place operations, we've done probably thousands of them in the last 20 years, and we really haven't figured out the best practices in terms of how we make sure that there's no degradation of care, right? That we're always ready to provide care associated with that. And, and there is a life cycle to when you deploy and come back. And, and we saw this, especially with the ERSTs that we had in Somalia, where we would have teams come and then they would come back again 
the same time next year for four months. And, and so we wouldn't have to start from scratch every single time. And then the other risk was loss of skills, right? So I had surgery teams that really weren't operating. And then the other risk I had was if we didn't use the capabilities that we had, we always were at risk of the joint staff or the services saying, we don't want to send you this anymore. And so we fought this battle with the army for a while on fielding the ERSTs until basically I, after I left it, it switched over to, to being sourced by an FRST. But just working through that understanding the the way decisions are made at the strategic and the operational level was was new. I just I hadn't really been exposed to that at a lower level. But the but the issues were the same, which was how do I make sure that people have what they need? They have the right skills to enable operations. So just like me as a field artillery officer, right? I'm not going to win a battle as an artillery officer, right? We're there to support the infantry. Same thing, medical, right? We're not going to win this war with medical. We're there specifically to enable our special operations teams, both SEALs and Green Berets and MARSOC and our special tactics brothers and sisters to do their job. And so understanding the role of medical in that context, I think is paramount. It's something that I tried to teach my teams a lot, which is understanding why we're there. When you think of the Indo-Pacific, you imagine a gigantic Pacific Ocean, you understand the challenges of that geography. But when you think of Africa, I think a lot of people don't realize how big Africa is. And I looked this up and found that you could fit 40 states of Texas in the continent of Africa, which just adds complexity. So when you have units operating all throughout Africa and they're forced into scenarios where they have to provide prolonged field care. How can you support those folks medically? Were you able to use technology like drones to get them equipment or do other things to support the lack of easy evacuation like we were used to in especially Iraq? Well, it's interesting. So we, we were entertaining working on some of the drone delivery, but those dis- we, there's no drones that actually have the range to actually help with supplies yet. Another, I think, common idea is that if you look at the map, if you look at the southern tip of Somalia, where we're basically fighting Al-Shabaab and the major base in Africa is in Camp Liminaire at Djibouti, where we had a role too that was staffed by the Navy. That's the to move a patient from the tip of Somalia up to Djibouti was the same as flying someone from Maine to Florida. And so the distances are just so massive that you just have to plan that you're going to have to hold patients for 72 to 96 hours if things go really crazy. So I talked about the risks of that job, but the opportunity, I think, really there was interoperability. So there, a lot of our partners are in Africa. And I used to try to make the argument that we need to use the Africa problem set to think about how we work together with our partners in a in a simulated area denial, anti-access environment and thinking about how we would work with our partners. So we looked at who else was in the battle space. So it was the French were pretty committed to especially the Western parts of Africa, but the Japanese were there. The French were also in Eastern Africa. The Germans were in there some, the Turkish were in there. And then the State Department is in there in a big way with all the country teams and, and the resources. And so one of the things I did when I first got there, I made a list of everyone I needed to have a relationship with to do that job. And literally, it was about 100 different organizations. And so then I just started making relationships. And I think that when you need help, it's a whole lot easier to get help from someone who you already know than cold calling someone and asking, right? It's building that trust and that relationship. And so right. when they got you on caller ID and they recognize the number. Right. And they know that they can call me 
And as much as I can get my boss, my boss has said, the answer is always yes, right? It is, you know, within obviously within reason, but as long as we're doing it for the right reasons, as long as it's legal, we're doing it for the right reasons, then the answer should usually be yes, because we're there as humanitarians to, to do good. So that really paid off. So I really hit that hard in the first couple months I was there. And then October 4th of 2017, so I'd been there about three months. And we had the Tongo Tongo, where we had a group of our Green Berets get ambushed by ISIS in West Africa. And we lost several. And we did not have the ability to medevac them because our Kazavac systems could not, they were contract and they would not go in and get patients if there was still kinetic activity going in. But we had developed a relationship with the French who had armed aircraft and an in-route care system. And so we asked the French to go get our casualty and they did. At the same time, we had already made relationships with the guys up at the TPMRC East up in Longstool, as well as the, the folks that control all the aircraft out of Ramstein and the people that do the medical regulation. And our mantra was call early and call often, right? To give updates, let them know what our problems are. And they called me. I called and let them know what was going on. I said, look, we've got casualties. We don't have really good information. We don't have them at the Roll 2 yet. We're working with the French to get them to the Roll 2. We actually had our two surgery teams that were ripping out. So we actually had two small surgical teams in EMA at that time. So we were actually well positioned, fortunately, to take care of our casualties. And uh, and he called me back like 15 minutes later. He said, we're launching a C-17 with the CCAT team. They're going to be wheels up in, in about an hour. And I told him, I said, well, I'm not sure we're going to actually have patients yet because none of them's made them do the role two yet. He's like, nope. I took the information you gave us. I talked to my boss. We looked at what aircraft were going to be available, crew rest. We saw one and my boss made the decision that he'd rather take the risk of sending aircraft that's not needed than have patients in Africa waiting for a ride. It takes like 18 hours for the flight to get down there. So to me, I think that was a real testament to everybody who wants to, if given the opportunity and the right information, is willing to, to take risks for the right reasons. So I really appreciate those guys at Ramstein leaning forward. And we did have patients for, for them to move and, and we were ready. And so, and, but some of that, a lot of that was because we had looked at all of the available resources and made the, the relationships that we could. How far was that C-17 able to get from the Roll 2 or wherever they got the patients from? Yeah. So the Roll 2 was right on the airfield at EMA. So okay. they could land and do a really good handoff in our surgery area building that was like literally right on the tarmac. And the French picked up our casualties, brought them right to us, to our surgery team. So, I mean, there was a lot of fog of war. There was a lot of trying to figure out what was going on. But I personally, I take a lot of pride that during the investigation and everything else that, again, medically, everybody got their the best shot possible based upon the conditions that we have. And we were as ready as we could have been. And because, especially because some of the casualties were the med. But it's developing, thinking about the problem set. And then, again, our job as surgeons is to increase increase our commander's decision space. It's to actually give our commanders options, not limit them to so it's either this or nothing, because that's not really an option commanders like to have. And so I think our job especially is to think like, okay, what else could we do? How else could we make this more robust? And so that was thinking about patient movement, especially with a lot of a lot of things that we spent a lot of time talking about. The other thing was a teleconsultation. So we really tried to lean into and use the advisor system, which is the telecritical care a consult. We would practice that with the virtual med send. And then as best as we could, we would rehearse, right? So that was my 
again, you know, you've heard me say this, right? The only way you're going to be ready is if you do it. And the only way you can do it is you show, you prove it, right? So whether it be in an exercise or with a mannequin. So our contract Kazavac, they had to do a rehearsal validation every month. So I said, okay, every month use that as a chance to validate and practice how you would do patient handoffs, how you would do your triage on the, on the battlefield, how you would incorporate the local forces. You would think, well, it's Africa. What else is going on in Africa? Well, in on 8 June 2018, we had a base that was overrun by Al-Shabaab. We actually lost Staff Sergeant Conrad, one of our special operators there. Same thing where fortunately we had the pieces in place and there we actually had armed vac because we knew there was a more chance of a kinetic uh, operation with that. And then in January 5th, 2020, we had Mandabay or Camp Simba was actually attacked by Al-Shabaab as well. So even though that stuff gets in the news and goes away, we have a responsibility to always be ready and be thinking about how things go. And just my last example was the last six months I was there was right when COVID was kicking off and all the uncertainty with COVID. And I would go back to Scott Air Force Base and attend the Global Patient Movement joint advisory board that Transcom would run and try to advocate for a lot of our patient movement capability. My my deputy, John Crow, and I would go hard and try to make sure that people weren't forgetting about us. And they had this, they would brief at the Jipum Jab about the TIS, the isolation systems that were developed after Ebola. And, but we actually had a contractor, one of our contractors who is in Djibouti, who actually got COVID really bad, got intubated and was at the EMF. And this was like in March of 2020. So in Transcom, they were not able to move anybody yet with COVID. And so it was actually our relationship that we continued to cultivate and maintain with the State Department. And the State Department had actually maintained these containered isolation units after Ebola. And so it was actually the State Department that was able to come and move our casualty up to Germany that fortunately he survived. But that's where you got to think of your options and, and what's available. The TISSES eventually got into Germany and, and they moved a lot of patients, but there was a little gap there that we have to really think about what other resources do we have that we can throw at this problem. So your experiences really set you up to be the operational medicine consultant for the Center for Global Health Engagement. Tell us a little bit about what that is. So the, the Center for Global Health Engagement is is one of the centers of the Uniformed Services University. Officially, I'm billeted as teaching faculty in the Department of Medicine. And so I teach med students, but I also do clinical care at Walter Reed, which I really enjoy. I think one of the the great things about teaching, especially attending at Walter Reed, is that you get to teach learners at so many different levels all at the same time, which I think makes it a lot of fun. But one of my other jobs, I work up there as an operational medicine advisor, and they work under under the president's office at Uniformed Service University in support of the combatant commands and the joint staff and health affairs. And so the goal of the CGHE is to work with the combatant commands to help synchronize and support their global health engagement efforts, as well as being synchronized the DOD efforts within global health, both within the services, but also in support of the combatant commands. And so they do a couple different things. They teach courses on uh, global health engagement. They have uh, fundamentals of global health engagement that they teach to teach about. And I think if you think of like, what's a global health engagement? Well, really, it's anytime we take an American medical person and we send them somewhere and they work with someone else to either teach, to train, to do a capability together, et cetera, where you're doing it more than just in the joint environment. And that's always been one of my mantras, which is the American way of war is one, that we're a part of a coalition. And then two, 
we try to keep it in an away game, which means we're always going to be expeditionary. And so that means you need to learn how to work not only with your our brothers and sisters in the other services, in the U.S. services, but you need to work within the interagency space. And you need to be thinking about working with our key allies and partners that we're going to be going to war with. And so thinking about those things like interoperability, how we work together, both to help enhance their ability to have a ready medical force, but also to make sure that they have a medically ready force. And so a lot of that could be looked at in the security cooperation domain, but there are some aspects of global health engagement that are not necessarily inside the security cooperation, but more in terms of global health, public health, the global health security agenda, understanding medical threats, medical research, and trying to synchronize uh, a lot of those across the joint force. So we've spent some time talking about a ready medical force, which really implies that when that force gets there, they're ready to do whatever they're required to do, no matter where they're at. How do we make sure that our medical force is ready? And if asked by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the Chief of Staff of the Army, is Army medicine ready? Is Navy medicine ready? How how can we answer that question confidently? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think it's a hard question. I think that's the question that always, I'm not going to say haunted me, but was at the forefront of my mind when I was thinking about my teams. It's like, are we ready? How do I know we're ready? And I think the way that you demonstrate that you're ready is by actually doing it. And so hard, realistic training. I think there's a role for different types of simulation, whether it be high fidelity simulation or even low fidelity simulation that really challenges you to go through the cognitive challenges associated with decision making. I would say, I think we're pretty good about doing that for our subordinates, but I think sometimes we're really challenged to do that for ourselves. I would have loved to have had someone come train me as a physician while I was downrange because the person that I was most worried about being ready was me, not my medics. I think that a lot of the efforts right now in terms of trying to make sure that the skill set and the caseload of what you're going to be doing downrange is sustained is a good effort. And I think most of that right now is focused on the high end of combat casualty care, the surgeons, emergency medicine, some of the critical care capability. But where I think we have a lot of room for improvement is how we sustain those role one physicians that are going to fill like those battalion surgeon jobs. And the Army is working on their KSAs and their the critical task list skills. And, and several of us helped try to put together this year some critical task lists associated with the 62 Bravo, the field surgeon that would fill that role one position. But I think we continue to have a real challenge to have the time and space for the physicians that are working in clinical areas to step out of that and actually apply that into a field or an expeditionary context. I think the best way to do it in some ways is to get people to deploy. And that's where I think global health engagements actually create the opportunity for people to go and see what it's like to practice with shoulder to shoulder with others, either teaching or engaging with people from other countries and maybe enhance or facilitate a better understanding of what it's like to practice outside of a U.S.-based hospital. But I think a lot of it is just going to be a commitment to thinking about expeditionary care as a competency that has to be sustained. And I think Kind of like before 9-11, where the way we trained was and the way we built resiliency was by doing tough, realistic training and train until you meet a standard. 
I mean, you would think that the the military would be very interested in developing high fidelity simulation for the things that you really don't see in America. Even if we have trauma surgeons and trauma teams and anesthesiologists embedded into level one trauma centers, they really aren't seeing IEDs and some of the things that you see on the battlefield. Where are we with that development and research in the military? I think a lot of the uh, research has been focused on developing high fidelity simulators, Most, a lot of it coming out of the simulators for anesthesia care, because the anesthesia community, I think, adopted that very early as ways to not only train their nurse anesthetists, but also as a way to have their learners go through lots of reps and create scenarios that hopefully don't happen very often in the operating room in terms of managing your emergency procedures. And so this is just me talking, which is, I think that there has been and continues to be a real emphasis on high fidelity simulation focused on task and skill trainers. So I think a lot of work is being, a lot of good work is being done on that. But even with that, what we're seeing a lot of times is that there really is a move towards perfused cadavers for a lot of skill training, especially for our our high-end surgeons. What I think we don't have as much in is more of those less fidelity simulators that actually challenge us to practice those cognitive skills. Right. Decision-making. Yeah, because in some ways it's, it's, okay, can I do the fasciotomy, yes or no? I guess the bigger question is, should I do the fasciotomy, yes or no? Should I put in the chest tube? And so I talk about this on the wards, but I talk about it in clinical care in general, which is like, hey, let's define our uncertainty, and then let's think about ways in which we can decrease that uncertainty. And, And so I think practicing those cognitive skills and then putting people into a simulated environment where they actually have to do it is really practical. So I'm hopeful that some of this immersion technology that'll provide some experiential learning, but somebody's, there's a lot of work that has to be done in terms of writing those scenarios, writing those cases and developing that curriculum in order to give people those, those scenarios. I mean, I'd love to have the Star Trek holodeck someday where we can immerse someone completely and put them through different scenarios. And so I think we're actually moving that way in terms of the technology, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, I think you bring up a a great point, especially when on the battlefield, the first war doc a casualty is going to see is going to be that medic. And so we can train the medic to do a lot of advanced procedures, but that's not the whole story. It's when do we do the cricothyroidotomy? When do we put a needle thoracostomy in? When do we put a chest tube in? And you know that's going to be the secret sauce of when we really are in austere places. What do we expect the medic to be able to do and not only do, but to be able to know that they need to do it? And I think that's where teleconsultation and the technology to reach out and phone a friend, I think, is is so important. Just to give you an example, as I mentioned before, my first deployment, I had two platoon-level fire bases. And so normally a platoon has one medic. I went and visited the, the platoon fire base, and I was talking to the platoon leader, and I'm like, well, what's your biggest concern? He's like, well, I know that when they watch us, they know who the medic is. The enemy is watching us. They know who the medic is and they're watching to see, is he going on patrol or is he staying at the base? And then my concern is, is they're going to attack where 
there's no medic because then they know no one's there to train to t- take care of stuff. So I thought that was very insightful. So we actually doubled down. I, I took medics out of my aid station. I buffed up. I put two medics at each of the platoon fire bases. We put oxygen, chest tubes. I would rotate the medics back to my aid station where we would do training. And that paid off a couple times where we couldn't evac folks, but they had the equipment they needed, they had the training. And then I was on the phone with them every 15 minutes saying, how's the patient doing now? We had a scenario where one of our mechanics was underneath the Humvee and the jack stand broke and basically the hub of a up armored Humvee fell on his chest. And because of the video that we had, we actually had the video. So we knew later when we did the investigation, we saw how long it was till they pulled him out. But because we had done that preparation, the medics on the ground knew what to do. They had the right equipment. And then I was on the phone with them and we were just talking through it. Okay. Tell me what you see. What do you think? It it was relatively low fidelity teleconsultation because it was all on the radio or the phone. We had a phone line at one point, then I had to go to the talk and then we were talking on SATCOM. But I think though we we didn't put those medics into a place where they felt like they were all by themselves. And I think that is an important role for us is that we put these young men and women with focused training and they're not fire and forget. We put them out there and we're accepting risk. And then we need to lean into them to let them know that they're not by themselves. And I think that goes a long way to to trying to mitigate some of that risk. One of your many roles is associate editor of the Military Medicine Journal. What's the purpose of the Military Medicine Journal and why would someone want to read it? Thanks for asking. So the military medicine is the journal of AMSIS, which is the federal medical society. Initially, it started as a international journal or group of military surgeons. The goal of military medicine in general is to provide a forum for anyone involved with federal medicine to have a place to share their research, their perspectives, their performance improvement projects with a real emphasis on the federal health system. So whether it be DOD, the VA, or in the interagency space. And so that's our niche, but it is international. So we really do encourage a lot of our international partners to submit articles to it. And what we've seen, and I'm really proud of, you know, that a lot of people in military medicine see military medicine as a platform to sharing best practices. Some really impactful articles that have been submitted and published in military medicine, such as articles on our responses to COVID or trauma resuscitation or demonstral surgery and demonstral resuscitation. We do actually also have a couple columns for on leadership and so that are focused on military scenarios and new graduates who are faced with some leadership condition scenarios where older physicians can do some analysis of, of what happened, as well as a column for global health. And so those are some of our columns. So this is my approach, right? So anything worth doing is worth measuring. Anything worth measuring is worth sharing. And so the only way I think that we're really going to advance medical military science is getting it into the peer-reviewed literature. And so I think there are some specifically focused journals that are focused on the military population specifically. Military medicine is one of them, although our goal is not just military, but the whole federal health system. So based on your vast experience in different areas in military medicine and especially operational medicine, what would you say is the greatest challenge for operational medicine today? And what should we be doing about it? Let me start with the premise that I think good organizations can do multiple things well at the same time. And I think the military medicine organization is a great organization. But I think we also have a tendency as the pendulum swings, we sometimes forget about 
what we've learned and we're changing focus. So as we've all the lessons we've learned doing counterinsurgency and stability operations over the last 20 years, now we're the pendulum is swinging to the other direction towards preparing for large scale combat operations, which I think is good. I think we need to be prepared for that. But just remember that after any type of large scale combat operation, there's going to be a stability operation and there's going to be some reconstruction and there's going to be a role for the DOD in that. So I think trying to balance those different missions, especially with the DHA transformation, I think we're in the biggest change of military medicine since probably World War II. And between focusing on DHA transformation and COVID, this interwar period that we've had, we were really focused on a lot of internal issues. And so I think maintaining and continuing that focus on our expeditionary care and thinking about how we can work better with our partners. So I think the current conflict that's going on in Europe right now, I think is highlighting the value and the need for us to be able to work closely, like truly work with our international partners and allies as we think about how we would do medical care together. And I think we're thinking about that and in Europe, but the Pacific uh, theater is still, I think, where the U.S. sees uh, some of its biggest threats. And so thinking about how we're going to do medical care in an environment that is discontiguous, no large hubs of care, I think is one of the big challenges because we've learned to be real efficient with our big hubs in Germany and Bagram and Hawaii. But if, if something happens to where we're not able to leverage those hubs in the same way in a, in a future conflict, we need to be prepared to do disaggregated operations in potentially a technology-challenged environment. And I think that because a lot of our solutions tend to be technology-based, that's where I get concerned about some of the challenges of how do we leverage technology but not put all of our eggs in one basket to where when we lose that technology, we're not prepared. Yeah, I think that's some of the magic of the the global health engagements when you get a chance to work alongside of providers who don't rely on the technology that we're so used to. We think that we're just there to teach them, but often I learn a lot of things when I'm in Honduras or in Ghana, watching the surgeons do things that like, wow, that's pretty cool. I would never have to do that because I have technology that takes care of that. But if I didn't, that'd be nice to have. Well, one of the things we like to ask all of our guests on Wardocs is, and I know that you have four kids, let's say your future family 50, 100 years from now listens to this podcast. What is something that you'd want them to hear from you about your career in military medicine? I think that I love being an army physician. I, I feel that I was prepared in a certain way and was given opportunities that really gave me a chance to serve others, that to live out my faith in a way that I could try to make the world a little bit better, at least for the time that I was in those locations for others, and try to relieve pain and suffering when possible. And then that there was a whole family adventure. My wife and my kids, they were along for the ride too. They didn't have their dad home all the time, and they moved around the country with me. And so military service really is a family affair. And so we really enjoyed getting to serve. And that, I think, leaning into hard jobs often are sometimes the uh, some of the most rewarding. And so I'm just so appreciative of the people that gave me those opportunities and appreciative of my wife who is willing to go on this wild ride with me. Thanks. We've been speaking with Army Colonel Dr. Ramey Wilson on Wardock's podcast. Ramey, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. 
Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking about this and I look forward to seeing how the next generation takes things to the next level. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.